Welcome everyone to our NCAA social series. I'm Andy Katz. Well, as we get ready for the Olympic Games in Tokyo, uh, these were the summer games of 2020, of course, postponed due to COVID to 2021. But we want to take the conversation to the collegiate model with two people that certainly know a lot about this and the feeder system, if you will, from college athletics to the Olympic Games, especially here in the United States. Although American college players certainly are sprinkled among all nations around the globe, or a, a number of them. And so I'm pleased to be joined by Sarah Wilhelmy from the, she's the Senior Director of Collegiate Partnerships at the USOPC, as well as Scott Strickland. Of course, his day job is the Athletic Director of the University of Florida. He's also the Chair of the USOPC Think Tank. Uh, so look, the Associated Press came out right in advance here of the games with, uh, I thought, a pretty significant number as they were analyzing the impact of college athletics on the Olympic Games. And they came up with the stat of 463 U.S. athletes, which is about 76%, came from 169 different institutions, divisions one, two, and three. If you break it down another layer, you can look at that 20 of the U.S. rosters in individual sports are made up of at least 80% athletes who played college athletics. So that's our baseline, Sarah, to show the importance of college athletics. First off, when you hear those numbers, what do you think? Oh, we crunched those numbers, Andy, and uh, we're really proud of them. We're, we're, we're thrilled. We have the best system in the world, and, and it's evident by how our pipeline organically comes through college to Team USA. So we're, we're proud of it. Yeah, you might have been the source there for the Associated Press. <laughs> Scott, your thoughts when you hear those. Yeah, well, um, I echo what Sarah said, but I'll, I'll take a step further, Andy. You know, America uh, and our, our U.S. OPC, our organizing committee, we're the only country uh, that competes in the games that uh, they're not funded by our government. So the, the federal government doesn't support the U.S. Olympic movement. It's, it's privately funded and is supported in large part because uh, college athletics and the and the uh, development program that it provides for all these student athletes, all those young people you referenced who came through college athletics in order to develop themselves into Olympic caliber athletes, they were able to do it not because uh, our our Congress, uh, the people in Washington decided they're going to support uh, the Olympic movement like they like they do in every other country, but instead because colleges and universities in our country spend over five billion dollars a year on Olympic sports. And so there's just, uh, we have a tremendous advantage because of what college athletics does, because of what it provides. And it's allowed us to not only um, stock our, our US Olympic team with collegians, but uh, they also end up winning a lot of medals and oftentimes we're at the top of the medal count. So not only is it uh, incredibly efficient for the US OPC, but it's really successful once our athletes get to the games and compete. So I just, before we dive a little deeper, I just want to, I sort of teed you off internationally as well, Sarah, and I know you're representing the United States here, but I mean, I just think of like Team Australia in men's basketball, I think of Patty Mills and Matthew Delavadova, two players that played at St. Mary's, who are Australian, playing for Team Australia. How about the collegiate experience and how much that has also helped these other countries uh, in terms of their Olympic rosters, even with their government funding? A great point. And, and it, it is really pronounced again. We had over 100 different countries that competed 
in the NCA system in 2016. So we're still crunching the numbers with the help of the NCA staff, but we're excited to see where those numbers take us. And I think it speaks to the importance of the college model helping amplify and sustain sports globally. It really, truly is, it's a beacon for a lot of countries to come play here. Well, so as we know, Scott, other countries don't have our same traditional collegiate athletic model. And yet as great as all this sounds, Olympic sports are getting cut. So how do you cut through that within the think tank of getting to your peers, those athletic directors and saying, wait a minute, we can't cut these sports because if we do, while it may not be a direct result next year, the year after, ultimately there will be a result in terms of probably fewer elite athletes if these sports get cut further down the road. No question. And that's, that's, uh, what you just described is, is why the think tank came into existence. Um, Sarah was, was, uh, had the forethought several years ago to, uh, uh, with uh, the help of Kevin White, former Duke AD, and as a member of the USOPC board, to create uh, the Collegiate Advisory Council, which was a group of athletic directors engaged with USOPC, uh, understanding the importance of the connection between college athletics and the Olympic movement. And through that, a collegiate advisory council that, that Kevin White chaired. The idea this past year through COVID was we do have a lot of Olympic sports that are in trouble that, that are not being prioritized on campuses. And we need a, a think tank, if you will, to really focus and help people understand, A, the importance of, of where the college athletics model fits in the Olympic movement and how it supports it. And secondly, what can we do to ease some of the burden and take away some of the, the hurdles that currently exist that make schools consider dropping sports. And so that's what a lot of uh, what we've been looking at is how can we uh, create policies, working with the NCAA, working with the national governing bodies of the various sports here in this country to uh, create a more sustainable model to where these sports and these young people continue to have a voice and, and uh, have a place where they can train on our campuses. So Sarah, how do we drive that point home? And look, we had two Olympians on our show uh, just recently, Brooke Forty, who swims at Stanford, and Chante Lowe, who was a four-time Olympian, who was a track and field athlete at Georgia Tech. Um, quite simply, as they were telling me, you know, there's no other place to sort of just high jump uh, in terms of have that facility in a, an Olympic type facility like there is in the collegiate model across the country at various levels, or to swim, obviously there are Olympic sized pools around the country, but to have that kind of competition, you're not going to get that unless you are swimming at an elite college institution. So those things have to go hand in hand. How do you drive that home so they don't get cut? Yeah, and I think there's probably two angles to that, Andy. You know, on one hand, it's, it's the best thing for the athletes. You know, in our country, you have the latitude to choose where do you want to be coached? Where, what academics do you want to acquire? What skills? And you get to pick your, your place and really develop. In other countries, the best of the best is kind of plucked out and put in a state institution with a state plan and, and it, your, your control is lost. Um, so that's an advantage for the athletes. But for the schools, I, I think Scott's getting at this too. It's part of our culture. It's who we are. And these opportunities really do help amplify and enhance campus offerings. And so, but, but what Scott hit on is what the think tank unpacked is the need, the absolute need to be flexible because not all of our Olympic sports operate with the same challenges as football and basketball. So how do we start to kind of separate that a little bit and get comfortable with customizing to the needs of each sport in their landscape? So Scott, you would know this more than anyone in terms of cost. 
Uh, and I'm just picking up off this point that Brooke and Shantae were telling me was, you know, how expensive it would be to do this on your own without sponsorship, for lack of a better term. Um, you know, I, what, what are the dollars? Yeah, I don't look, need exact figures, but what would it be if an athlete didn't have that infrastructure of a major university? Yeah, well, you just you start breaking down what being a student athlete provides monetarily. You know, there's a, a scholarship involved, and, and depending on what school you're at, that can be anywhere from twenty thousand dollars a year up to over six figures, a hundred thousand dollars just for the scholarship. And in addition to that, you get a place, you know, a, a dorm room or, or a, a housing check. Uh, you get uh, food. You get, uh, you know, we're going to give you gear. We're going to we're going to train you with some of the best coaches in the world. Uh, as who are going to you know provide daily attention to helping you become as good as you can be both uh, in your sport and also academically and you you think about it's it's hard to really put a price on that but for some athletes at certain schools it could be a quarter million dollars annually and even on the conservative side uh, you're probably looking at, at fifty thousand dollars a year that is being invested directly into these young people that are allowing them to 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 train and so that's what you're, you're, they would be looking at trying to figure out out of pocket how to do that. The other part, and this plays off of uh, something both of you guys have talked about, is, is we do train international students as well, obviously, because we have them as part of our program. Um, we don't realize how unique the American college athletic model is. And I really didn't understand this until a few years ago. Um, I, was, I was talking to a young lady who was from Europe, and she was looking to come over to, to go to school in America and compete. And I asked her why she wanted to, to come to America. And she said, you know, in Europe, when you graduate, uh, whatever their version of high school is, you have a choice to make, to Sarah's point. You can go and, and join a club and train in order to try to uh, improve yourself as an athlete. But if you do that, you cannot go to uh, further education. Um, if you decide to go the education route, you go to university, but there's no opportunity to uh, continue to develop as an athlete. America is the only place in the world because of the collegiate model where you can combine the opportunity to continue to earn education and get a degree um, with the opportunity to compete at the highest level at Olympic caliber level and prepare for the opportunity to go win a medal for your country. You know, sometimes uh, the way we describe something matters and it feels like I've been doing this a long time, as Scott knows, uh, three decades. And I, I can't remember when it was, but there was a shift, a transition from calling these sports non-revenue to Olympic. And it felt like when that happened, it, it was even more of an emphasis on its importance, on what it meant to compete in those sports. How much has that helped, Sarah, to call them Olympic sports rather than non-revenue sports? Oh, huge. And then I got to thank the, the Collegiate Advisory Council for help really being a contributor to that. So in 2017, when we started, that was one of the first priorities was this notion of how do we message? How do we convey the value and the ties? And we launched our Olympians Made Here campaign, which is the first time we're even able to visually show a school brand with the USOPC brand in an editorial way. And, and it's so vital to tell that story, to tell it with the imagery and the language and all those pieces, because it's the fabric of something our country holds dear. And that is excellence, you know, the chance to be best in the world. And, and that's a segue that's important through the college and Team USA system collectively. Scott, uh, back from when you were in your SID days to being an athletic director, do you, I'm just curious, when do you remember that shift happening? 
You know, it, it's been in the last 10 years, it seems to me. Early on, it was, it was kind of, you heard it early on, it was almost, um, there was a, a realization that, that non-revenue, uh, while uh, from a financial standpoint, made total sense, it was a little offensive when you look at what these young people are, are putting into trying to be as good as they are and, and, and what we on our campuses are trying to do uh, investing in those young people. So I would say, you know, it's probably gained full acceptance here in the last decade or so. And, and for every reason, you know, Sarah talked about, it's, it's really important, the messaging and how we position these sports. Uh, no, they don't in our country have the same uh, financial impact of a football or a men's basketball, but because of those two really important sports on our campus, uh, we are able to fund all these other Olympic sports that provide us the opportunity to to see our, our young people go off and represent Team USA in these other countries. Sarah, also, I think we're in an era, which is great, where a lot of these Olympic sports are getting much more exposure and coverage. Uh, the proliferation of, you know, conference networks has certainly helped in that manner. Um, you know, obviously through social media, uh, all that's happening. And even now with name, image, and likeness, I think you're going to see a lot of Olympic athletes Olympic sports athletes, excuse me, at the collegiate level, really benefit more than I think was even projected when all this was being discussed over the last couple of years. How much have, do you think that has helped, whether it's gymnastics, uh, whether it's you know swimming, which certainly could get even more coverage uh, at the collegiate level, but other sports like that, track and field, uh, certainly, um, you know whether it's soccer, I could go down the list that these certainly are starting to get more coverage, but the more they get, ultimately will benefit the USOPC model going forward. I couldn't agree more. I mean, if you're not visible and you're vulnerable, to be quite honest. So the more visibility we can give these sports, the better. And, and I agree with you too, the notion of the conference networks and the, even the individual athlete platforms, we have a whole new wave of opportunity ahead of us to really showcase. And I, I was always surprised when I started this job in 2016, how many people were surprised we have a national team every year, not just every four. Uh, but it's every year. And so we got to tell that story with the schools collectively because we have Olympians and we have national team athletes currently on campus or they're alumni of campus. And we got to keep that thread and that awareness high. So the other aspect of this that I want both of you to comment on uh, that deserves to get more mention is the Paralympian aspect to this because, you know, we talk about costs. There's even more costs, obviously, at the Paralympian level, uh, depending upon, you know, what your situation is and what sports you're involved in. So Scott and then, and Sarah, just how much can that also be a huge benefit if you've gone through the collegiate model to compete at the Paralympics? Well, you know, this is obviously an underserved uh, part of uh, most college campuses. And, you know, I, I, we're guilty of it here at the University of Florida as well. Uh, but one of the fun things about being a part of the think tank is we've had a chance to look at sports sustainability. We've looked at the structure of sport and how we can streamline that to make uh, remove some hurdles. Uh, we've looked at you know what kind of partnerships we can have to to promote these young people and and the relationship between uh, universities and the Olympic movement. But one of the really recent topics that we've come up with is uh, you know creating a collegiate para sports inclusion uh, project to to really. Um, you know, highlight and emphasize the opportunities here. And, and as more schools are talking about that, more schools understand what this could provide, I think we're going to see a lot more opportunities for those young people. And Sarah uh, knows it better than anybody. I'll let her kind of take it from here. But she's, she's been a real advocate for the Paralympic piece of this. 
Yeah, thanks, Scott. It's uh, it's it's so cool. Who would have known uh, when I stepped into this chair in 2016? We did the homework, so uh, we took a look to kind of see what is the footprint of our Paralympic athletes in connection to college. And 40% of that team in 2016 competed in college for 79 different schools. So I, I think it's organically happening already. And, and I'm so excited because this project will give us an avenue for schools who are in the space already to work together. And, and we think with that unity, we can really build something stronger. So we're excited about it. And I got to give a shout out to big thanks to the Collegiate Advisory Council and their work. Um, and seems like a decade ago, but it was just January, 2020. We had for the first time ever, uh, Paralympic is now included in all three NCAA divisions manual language, which means they're now afforded the same exceptions as an Olympian. So we're making awesome strides together and I'm just so grateful for all the leaders around the table to help shepherd it forward. So Sarah and Scott, I, I mean, look, we can't tell um, you know, the broadcast partners what to do, but uh, how much I'm curious, uh, has there been a push um, in addition to obviously Team USA, which will be across you know, their chest to at least graphically or verbally make it known where this athlete competed at the collegiate level, regardless of what division, uh, you know, the individual competed in. Yeah, I can start with that one, Andy. Um, so we are so grateful. We signed a contract with the NCAA to really be committed. Like, let's tell this story using our channels. And so we're so grateful at trials. Uh, I hope folks were watching and you could see the signage the Olympians made here, co-branding was there, uh, very visible. And then NCAA championships, it was all over. And it was such an awesome testament to that correlation and that connection. Um, so we're also hopeful that during NBC, we are feeding storylines to their folks. We are um, really encouraging that that college storytelling becomes part of the fabric of telling uh, the games through through our lens and we know ESPN and, and your partners have been great to help with the championship side to do the same so I think we're at the forefront we're just getting started and making this a new norm but it's a pretty exciting horizon and I'll, I'll follow up that uh, one of the other things that's exciting is is um, a lot of these schools uh, University of Florida is one of them we're in a league that has its own conference network and so you know the SEC network or the Big Ten network all these other conference networks we've had great dialogue with them to you know help us um, tell the story of the athletes from your conference who are having success in Tokyo and, and, you know, make those connections for the people at home that may not otherwise, may not otherwise realize that, uh, you know, there's someone from my, my alma mater of a school that I follow that's, that's having great success over there. And this is also the point, and you didn't ask this, Andy, but I thought I'd take the opportunity that uh, the University of Florida is going to have 30 Gators uh, in Tokyo, 15 of which will be on Team, team USA. So that's an opportunity I know uh, on our campus level. We're going to really uh, spend the next you know, couple weeks uh, making sure that, that everyone who loves the University of Florida understands what, who these young people are and their connection to our university. And I know every other school out there that has an Olympian representing them are going to do the same thing. Well, Scott, I'm not surprised by that. I will be more impressed if you tell me in the Winter Games you got 30 Gators. <laughs> <laughs> Baby steps. We're more of a summer Olympic type school. Andy. Yes. All right. Last thing, uh, obviously the Olympians themselves. Uh, I'm just curious, Scott, Sarah, just what kind of input you've had from them uh, as they discussed, as I mentioned, we talked to Shante and Brooke a couple weeks ago, but just what are you hearing from them about the need to preserve the Olympic model, if you will, at the collegiate level, division one, two, and three? One of the things that, I, that um, you know, again, I go back to, uh, people think of football means basketball and they think of college athletics because of the profile they have in our country. But um, so many schools do such a great job of making all their athletes 
feel equally important regardless of what sport they're in. And so whether you're a men's track and field or women swimming and diving or a gymnast or, or you know, tennis or any of these other sports, um, I know they feel like they get tremendous support uh, because of the emphasis that our universities place on their sport and what they're doing. And um, they would, you know, we talked about earlier the, the financial impact of what being invested in them. But I think they see that and realize that on a daily basis. And so they, they are real advocates for uh, doing anything that we need to do to make their sport more sustainable and to make this ecosystem uh, healthier. And I can echo that from uh, the interaction we've had with the national team level. So when we went to, um, before the winter games, we held a media day and our athletes came through our college stop and we had their school pennants to take pictures and send stuff back to school to put on their channels. And we got in trouble because there's too much of a ruckus because too many athletes were singing their alma mater songs. They were doing their rally cries and getting competitive. It was awesome. Um, and I can tell you, we're going to see that again. We're going to be putting up what we call our college corner. Um, we know there won't be family and there won't be fans in the stands in Tokyo. So we're going to try to bring college to them a little bit. So we're going to be bringing their, their pennants and their good luck wishes from their schools. Um, and I can tell you, Shantae Lowe is one. So you just talked with her, Andy. She was one of the, she was one of our anchors and our, our key athletes to help build this college corner concept that'll be active in Tokyo. So uh, our, our athletes are so proud. And I can also tell you on the heels of COVID, where they were looking for places to train and they want to see you know, the athletes behind them have the same opportunity. They are passionate about preserving this model in our country. So it's, a, it's been a really awesome effort to work together on it. And that's a great point to end on, Sarah, because during this pandemic, the universities were some of the first places to open up athletically to at least give, give a place for some of these collegiate Olympians uh, to train as they work toward the trials uh, in the spring of 21. So certainly it was a huge benefit that even that was open as slowly it became open in the latter stages of 2020. To both of you, thank you. Appreciate it. Um, that'll conclude this edition. As always, you can go to ncaa.org slash social series where all of them are archived over the last year and a half. Well, everyone check out the Tokyo Olympic Games and we'll check out all NCAA athletes competing. Thanks again. We'll talk to you next week.